All right. Well, let's get started. Max, walk me through birth. Walk me through your family. Who raised you? I want to know a little bit about your background. I know that we never really got around to it since we started the podcast, but I just want to get to know who is Max Thornton. All right. Okay. Um, so I was, yeah, born in um, born in the south of England, um, and uh, yeah, I was. I'm born a triplet. So I got two sisters. Yeah, two sisters the exact same age. Okay. Um, grew up until I was 18 in the UK. Um, but my dad actually moved to Switzerland when I was 10. So I spent a lot of time in Switzerland. Um, yeah, grew, grew up in the UK and then left the UK when I was 18 and went to the US for university full time, went to Richmond, Virginia. Um, and that's really when I got the travel bug, I guess. Um, so coming got, to the US was really what kicked it off then. Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. But actually, before actually before I was in the US, I went to had a really good friend from school that was Zambian, so I went to Zambia. That was my first like taste of a like emerging frontier market when when I was seventeen, eighteen. What was that? And like? then yeah, it was cool. It was it was interesting. I got to work with like a, a, a presidential candidate and um, just you know understand. Yeah, just just sort of learn about some of the businesses in in the city. It was you know it was very. It was very early at that point. Uh, Zambia is now really quite a booming place. Um, but yeah then, yeah, then I got to university in the US and um, I was actually explaining this to someone the other day. I mean, I've always been, I mean, I've always kind of liked finance. My, my, um, my family, a lot of them have had experience in that space. So it always kind of, I guess, pushed me in that direction. But I always like to be, I always like to kind of look at the fringes of it. So I, I was saying this to someone the other day um like back in 2013 2014 i was really into esg and impact investing and that was when when you talk about that everyone would look at you like an alien and now <laughs> and now it's like now, now it's very um now it's very mainstream and then i guess when i graduated university i then got into the fintech uh bitcoin community and that was still pretty fringe and what and year was that that was 20 2017 really so right as soon as the the spike happened when everybody yeah but then i was actually, but then i was actually working at a at a fintech fund in 2018 and that was when everyone was saying oh this is all over you know like oh it's just the first wave and it's done right um, and then yeah from there that I then i then got into the frontier emerging market stuff um sort of after that and and, and then traveled to uh, the Gulf, Kenya, and then now Cambodia. Um, <clears throat> but I had to spend some time in China and Tanzania as well in, in my in my summers from university. And yeah, uh, but no, I, but yeah, I guess, yeah, that's kind of how I got to Cambodia because yeah, I was always, I was always, um, always attracted to like friends at, at school and university that were, were from different places. And then and then how that kind of linked to the investment universe. Got it. So maybe like taking taking a little bit of a step back and talking about your university experience as well. It's it's really interesting <laughs> because a lot of times when you, because I'm from the US, I'm from North Carolina, and if anybody talked to you about your traveling experiences, it's it seems like it's so normal, but it's really just kind of out of this world. So. I'm sure when in university, when people were talking to you and you were telling them about your time in, uh, you know, in, in Africa and everything, you they they probably were so interested in that too. Yeah, I mean, I think no, I think I was I was definitely early. Like in the in the U.S., you've got people that you know they're like you know they're like um, oh I'm going to go and study abroad to Europe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so cultured, right? <laughs> Well, you're really, you're really gonna, you know, you're really gonna impact you, you, yourself there. But you know, it was actually my friends. You know, a lot. Of, I, you know, I was, I'd gone abroad. I was, I was abroad. My freshman year, I went to China for the summer. But I think most of my friends started like, you know, doing that. Um, you know, during their junior year, it was they'd, they'd go and study abroad. But but the the ones that actually went a bit further afield. Um, like I had a friend who spent a year in China, another friend that went to Tanzania, another one that was in South America. And, you know, they're the ones that had the more like formative experience. Um, but no, but yeah, I, I think, uh, but I think, I guess with a lot of Americans, you, 
you, you do meet a lot of Americans that, you know, that, that enjoy uh, just like living and being in America because there, there's a lot to do. So, you know, yeah, no, um, yeah. yeah, it's hard to meet people that, although my university was quite focused on like international students and international, like that whole international thing. But, um, but yeah, I was definitely early within my, within my like group of friends for like how many places I wanted to visit and see and like build my international experience. Yeah. And it's really cool too, that you have that early passion for finance and especially with emerging markets too. And you went to the university of Richmond. That's correct. Yeah. University of Richmond spiders go spiders. Go spiders. That's right. (laughs) Uh, I actually went there when I was a, when I was a freshman too and visited the campus. It's a really beautiful campus there. Yeah. I actually think we got rated the most beautiful campus in America at one point. So that's pretty. Okay. Nice. And during your time there leading into what would be your first couple real world jobs, how were the internships and some of the volunteer experiences that you had leading up to what you current, uh, currently are doing at Obor Capital as an investment analyst? Okay. So yeah, I mean, I, so yeah, I, I graduated university. I took a job in the, um, kind of investment research space in, in at the beginning, um, working for a company called third bridge, which is, which was similar to, um, GLG and alpha sites. And they're basically mm-hmm. just research partners for hedge funds, private equity firms. That was my first, like my first job out of college, quite fun, quite salesy. Mm-hmm. Um, just, yeah, yeah, quite, quite an intense kind of environment. And yeah, I did that for just over a year. And then I had this opportunity to join this, this, um, FinTech fund. Um, so I kind of jumped at that and I took it cause it was like, so yeah, it was something I was very interested in at the time. And then did you, uh, bridge the gap between I, the two roles. Well, to be honest, I, I, I just started wanting, I wanted, well, during my time doing all this like research with private equity and hedge funds, I was seeing a lot more of them becoming interested in, in crypto. Um, and it was just, yeah, it was just an exciting time to be learning about it. So I started networking a bunch with um, crypto hedge funds or, or fintech funds. Right. Um, and I just really kicked it off with, with a guy and he just said, all right, we need, we need an analyst, um, like, come work for us, you know, ditch, ditch your job. So I, was like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a good opportunity. Um, and then, you know, and then to be honest, the, the, in 2018, the, um, you know, the, the fintech crypto markets they did they they got hit pretty hard so that fund did get hit pretty hard but i um i then really began my interest in emerging frontier markets at that point and and they actually they started to transition more to like an algorithmic um quant model which i could i had less value add there so i i did a year with them and then i moved on to um, this company called oxford business group which is actually a company i'd always wanted to work for and I'd known them since uh, um, senior year of college. And they are basically the leaders in uh, what I would call emerging and frontier market on the ground investment research. And so they work in 35, 40 uh, emerging, but probably mostly frontier markets. And they, in many cases, they're like the first objective economic news uh, media that comes in. Um, you know, once a country like opens up to the world and opens up their markets, like for instance, if you, if you go on Bloomberg Terminal and type in Papua New Guinea, like our research is one of the only ones there. Or you know, we were the first in Mongolia, uh, Myanmar. You know, a lot of these sort of um, exciting African markets. Um, you know, we just did a report on Guyana in 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 South America. So anyway, that was what I really liked about that was that that's a job that um, you're fully abroad. So that, that, you know, you don't, there's no base. You literally just go from project to project to project. So, um, yes, they started me off in the Gulf. Um, I was working in Dubai, Abu Dhabi. And then, and then, yeah, I was like, I want to get a bit more. I want to get out of the emerging and into the frontier. And they, they, so then they said, all right, we can, you can go run the project in, in, in East Africa. So I was based in, um, in Nairobi, which was really a really good experience because there's a lot of, there's actually a lot of similarities I'd say between like East Africa and Southeast Asia um, with, with the kind of investment appetite that's coming in. And yeah. What would um, you say were some of those, uh, some of those similarities that you saw and also how old were you during this time? 
How old? Well, I mean, I'm 25 now. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, that, like since university, you know, it's been the last four years pretty much. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's great. Yeah. yeah but, um, no, okay. The similarities, what are the similarities? Well, I mean, it's, it's things like, you know, things like the, um, you know, the unbanked FinTech that, that, that's, that's starting to take off. Um, it's the kind of like formalization of the agriculture sector, mm-hmm. uh, to like, you know, supply chain, um, integration and that kind of thing. And then, um, areas such as, uh, I guess, you know, making manufacturing more competitive, doing special economic zones. Um, just, yeah, just like, I mean, just, I think, yeah. And also, but I, I think the one thing that differs quite drastically is, um, I actually wrote this um, this long piece on it uh, back in June, and it's 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 the debt levels. So, um, yeah, debt demand and demographics. And anyway, anyway, uh, the debt levels in much of Africa are just quite a lot higher, just because a lot a lot of that comes down to like um, public sector expenditure and, and the efficiency of the public sector um, in in Southeast Asia much more efficient. And, and to be honest, like, you know, it's just things like, you know, how much do you pay your politicians a year? You know, like in Kenya, you can make as a politician, you can make, you know, 200,000 USD easily, you know, so they make the same, you know, they make the same as like a UK politician, but, but the economy is you know, 20 times smaller or something. So it, yeah. So th- those are the kinds of things that you, you kind of worry about structurally in some of those markets, like, even in somewhere like Nigeria, um, you know, really booming place, but you know, their politicians are the second best paid politicians in the world. And it's like, like, do they, you know, have they got to that point where they should really be garnering that much? Yeah. So that, that anyway, that's a slight structural issue with, with Africa. And the only problem with that is what it does is it really impacts the cost of doing business because, because you've got a, um, you've got a public sector that really wants to tax the private sector and that what that, yeah, just, it just means multinationals are less likely to locate like some of these markets because they, because they don't, because they know that they're just going to get hounded for, for taxes and, and mm-hmm. fees. Yeah. Whereas in Asia that, whereas in Asia, it's a lot more light touch. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are examples of people changing that. So like, for instance, Rwanda, Ghana, Ethiopia, like three examples of countries that are taking a much more lean approach to the mm-hmm. governance, like um, spurring this private sector. And you think it's in this case too, do you, is it they're looking at their neighboring countries and saying, well, this doesn't look like it's working that much. Maybe we should take a different approach. Yeah, no, yeah, they are. They are. Um, yeah. yeah, they're look, Yeah, they're looking at the model and they're saying, they're saying, you know, how do we balance our books and how do we, you know, how do we innovate the model a bit and, and bring down the cost of doing business? Yeah. So kind of stepping away from the work aspect of it and what you learned there, what was your lifestyle like, whether it was between being in Dubai versus Nairobi? I feel like there has to be some sort of insane oh, yeah. offensive lifestyle. So, I mean, I mean, if you have you, if, I mean, yeah. For anyone who's been to Dubai, I mean, it's it, it, you know, it's it's like it's you either you love it or you hate it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's one of those places where you just think it's not real life. I mean, you've seen it on movies where you have just Ferraris, Lamborghinis, anything, just strolling down the road, and then you see like a camel strapped to the top of it, like just chilling and hanging out. You, it's just yeah. these these things that you wouldn't even believe would be real. Yeah, I mean, no, but it, but it's fascinating that, um, you know, some of the really, the older people that you meet there, like, you know, Dubai was nothing in, in like, in the 1970s. There was nothing there. It was like, it was literally a town. So it is, it is very, it is astonishing what they've been able to achieve quickly. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, they, as a, as just a country in general, or the UAE, like they are, they really are pushing the boundaries of a lot, of a lot of areas, um, like such as like, you know, they want to be one of the first to do like autonomous driving, you know, they're really pushing on artificial intelligence. Um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, it's a really cool place to, I mean, the, the, the one really fascinating thing about Dubai, right, is that Dubai as a city, I think has the highest percent of expats of any city in the world. So I mean, they not- definitely sell it to be an awesome place. I mean, if you look at the clubs, if you look at skydiving over top, I mean, it's, 
they have everything that anybody could ever want there. No, but yeah, so that's, that's what's interesting about it. So it's 90% expats, um, you know, from all over the place. So you meet a bunch of people really easily. Um, the, 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 um, the cost of living is relatively high, but that is changing now because the, there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of real estate oversupply. Um, but yeah, I mean, no, but the lifestyle I'd say in Dubai is quite sort of, you know, it's quite sort of, um, how would I put it, sanitized and, you know, everything works and it's very orderly. And, you know, although there's a lot going on, like as it's like, it's an emerging place and there's lots of opportunity, um, you know, it's very much a, it, it's actually very much a like metropolitan city in, in many regards. Right. So, um, yeah, and it's actually becoming an offshore financial center as well, which is, an, which is another interesting area. But the, the other interesting amount devised Abu Dhabi, that's the other city within the UAE, is actually trying to, you know, it's competing a lot with Dubai for a lot of things, which is kind of interesting. And mm. I think they're doing a good job. So a lot of people are thinking more about Abu Dhabi. But no, but if you compare that to, to Nairobi, I mean, very, very different. I mean, Nairobi is a, Nairobi is a much more chaotic, um, you know, mad, like fun, wild kind of place. You know, I like it, the it, wild, wild west a little bit. Well, I mean, it's like, no, I mean, it, it's a pretty, I mean, if you compare it to like most cities in East Africa, it's probably the most like, it's probably one of the most expat heavy. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's, it's actually, re- it is pretty safe. Um, although there obviously have been some incidents in the past. Um, and it, it's really the NGO, it's the NGO hub for, for even for a lot of Africa. Um, so yeah, you meet a really interesting mix of people. You've got a bunch of people in the conservation space that like, you know, hub themselves in, in Nairobi. But then there's also just a ton of um, East African businesses that put their hub as, as Nairobi right now. But as I was saying, you know, people are, people are starting to challenge that. But, but no, lifestyle wise, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it was a lot more, it was a lot more unpredictable. In, in, mm-hmm. in, in Kenya and there was just a lot more to do and see and it's much more like accessible like mm-hmm. in, in Dubai you're just always having to fork out a ton of money to like do anything yeah no that's understandable too and from those experiences it led you to investment in the frontier markets in Cambodia so what are what is it that you're doing at Obor Capital now as an analyst and what are some of the interesting things that uh, you're working on don't necessarily need to go into too much detail if it's confidential but maybe some of the things that are exciting and that you're looking forward to yeah so i think so yeah just to just to back up a bit like you know i was in kenya until until uh april and um you know then i had to leave because of coronavirus and you know that that company that i work for you know sadly a lot of what they do is on the ground meetings and face-to-face stuff so um you know, they had to pause their operations globally uh, until, you know, until there's a solution with coronavirus. I mean, there's still some of the companies still still working, but a lot of staff were told, you know, you, you, we've just got to take a break. Um, mm-hmm. So then I, so then I, then I really, I went back home to the UK and I really started figuring, trying to figure out, you know, what was kind of next for me. And I really, I mean, I, I really started getting into like, what, like, other than you know a lot of the African markets that I'd seen, like what are the other what are the other countries in the world that I would be really interested in working in and covering? And also, always with Oxford Business Group, I was looking to my my next project. I wanted to go to Asia, um, and yeah, I just kind of decided that like the most most high potential markets in Asia, in my opinion, were Uzbekistan, Nepal, Myanmar, Cambodia. Those were the, those were like the four I came up with. So then I just started. Um, you know, trying to figure out exactly who the main players were in, in the investment space in those, in those countries and doing a ton of networking. Um, anyway, really liked, really liked what Obor were about. Um, uh, set, set up by a very diverse team. So it's a French Cambodian guy called Christophe Forsnetti, who's, who's like, who was born in Cambodia and has been involved in the investment scene here since 2007. So like a lot of so, you know, he's been here a while. That's um, really early to come to think of it. 
mean, especially yeah. in 2007 to think where, where it was then versus now. I mean, it's incredible how much it's changed, especially the landscape. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah. And then he met one of our other founders called Shivam Tripathi, who's, um, he's actually ex JP Morgan in India. And, and anyway, he founded this company called Cambo Ticket, which is one of the, which is, which, which is the biggest travel online travel booking site in the country. Um, mm. And Christoph then um, helped found a few other companies and we brought it all on, under, under a roof uh, really in 2016. And you know, since then we've invested in another uh, three or four companies. So we, we, we're now currently at six portfolio companies, but I think the approach that we take is we really try to adapt the venture capital model to frontier markets. Um, and what that means is you need to, you know, you need to be really adapting for execution risk and trying to put the right kind of human capital in place. Also just working with portfolio companies to improve, like improve the boring things. That's what we call them. Like the things that you can trip up on. So whether it's like governance, governance for government relations, tax, legal, legal um, financial management, uh, even, even just getting, you know, sometimes even just um, helping out with their marketing um, and, and actually tech development as well, tech development. So we, so uh, luckily enough, like, you know, we had that history with one of our founders who's Indian and, you know, he has a very good network in the development community in India. And so, you know, we, we do a lot of outsourcing there. Um, and yeah, and we, can we also currently, so, so that's the adaption that we call sort of hands-on support. And then the other thing that we do is that we, uh, we will launch our own ventures. Uh, so we're, I, from what we understand, we're the only venture builder in Cambodia. So we will, like, we will bring in like an entrepreneur in residence, give them an idea, um, you know, give them like bootstrap them some capital. Uh, we will take some, we, in some cases, we'll just, we can take some sweat equity and really get stuck into the business and then really try and get it off the ground. Um, so, we, you know, we'll be writing check sizes between a million all the way up to like 2 million. Sorry, no, a hundred thousand all the way up to 2 million. Um, and yeah, and we, no, we're sector agnostic and we're also starting to look more regionally. So we did our first deal. We, like Vietnam and Laos, we look at opportunistically, but Myanmar we see as a, as a natural expansion uh, point. Um, so yeah, we, we're pretty excited about the potential for Cambodia, um, especially. And but we do see that, you know, the, the vultures will be ascending pretty soon. You know, <laughs> give, it like, give it like two years, you know, you've got, 500 startups who are here, um, you know, you've got, you know, there's, there's, there's SADIF, Mekong Strategic Partners, 5 million fund. Um, you've got two PE funds here, you know, EMIA and, um, and Belt Road Capital Management, but both of those are regional. And then you've got Octane as well, which is a Cambodian VC firm that's done a few deals already. Um, but Mekong's got the most portfolio companies. We're second, like six. So really, I mean, really there's three, I would say really there's three VC firms in the country. Right. And that is like, I mean, that, that is very, very nascent. I mean, total portfolio companies, uh, you know, you're talking at like 17, Yeah. you know, invested in by like local VC firms. So like that is very, very nascent. So, it's insane how nascent that is. Yeah. So of course, like, yeah. So, so yeah. So I think I'm really excited to be working at Overwall. Like most people, like most people, when you talk to them, like, Oh yeah, I've moved to Southeast Asia. I'm living in Cambodia. They're like, oh well, that's not really the center of what's going on. But like, you know, good, you know. and I'm just like, little do they know. <laughs> I don't want to be left behind. Like, I don't want to arrive in somewhere like Vietnam now. Right. You know, that, that's a bit too late. I think the party's like really got going already, and we're not. We're, you're not. You're not. You're not there yet. It's just, I'd say the same with Indonesia. So. So yeah, yeah, I actually think I think the best time to be an investor is when people are questioning why you're somewhere. And I still get that from people now. Like, oh, really? You, you're investing in Cambodia? I'm like, yeah, well, the fact that you're asking that question means that it's a good time to invest in Cambodia. Because when you're telling me that I should be, it, and, you, like, and you're someone that's just like a, you know, an average retail investor, then I know that I might be too late. Right. And it's, it's insane too, because for, for me, I have a lot of people asking me, where is Cambodia mm. in the U S and they say, you, so you mean you're in like Asia, are you in Asia? It's this question and to, to even 
get in the granular detail of talking about investments and thinking about how much potential there is in a frontier market like Cambodia. I mean, you you can you can be more right in saying that if people are questioning it or not really talking about it, then you already have that edge and you can see that especially with some of the innovative technology that's going on. I mean, especially with Indonesia now, how they've almost had a pretty recent explosion in education technology. I mean, starting with Gojek, really. I mean, they they kind of had that unicorn that was created, and now there's all of these other followings in education. Yeah, like Tokopedia the yeah, other day. Exactly, exactly. And it's... it's and really, India, I mean, India's gone mad. I mean, yeah. India's, India's gone... Yeah. Like I've actually, well, I guess I've actually, we need to have 1.2 billion people there. Hopefully, somebody, you know, there are going to be a couple of good ideas that are going to, are going to be floating out. <laughs> like, but I've been, I've been like, we've been doing a lot of networking and talking to like some of the, the Indian um, investment community because a lot mm. of them are interested in expanding to Southeast Asia. And you talk to them about some of these valuations for like for pre revenue companies. And it is, it is mad. You know, it's, you know, you, you know, you, you know, you're seeing like billion dollar valuations for, in some cases, things like with very little traction. Um, yeah. Whereas in Cambodia, like, you know, good, like, you know, ha ha like, um, good luck trying to, good luck trying to have a startup that will be valued at more than a million. <laughs> like, it, it's very rare here. But, but, but that is a huge opportunity. It's a yeah. huge opportunity. Yeah. If you, like, if you just have some capital, um, you know, you, you can get, you can get high minority majority stakes in companies at very, very reasonable valuations, but it's not going to last forever. But that's, it's funny because that's all about, it's the cart and the horse, right? It's, it's, so what's, what's actually relatively challenging in Cambodia is actually just getting investors to come in and join and join your fund or your whatever vehicle you're running. Um, but that's always the funny thing is, is, is you know, you know, you the best investors shouldn't be defined by the fact that there aren't that many investors here. They should realize that, you know, they should have the foresight that they need to be adventurous and they need to be early. Yeah. But, but that funny thing is that, like, you know, you, yeah, we're still, you know, you still have to kind of try and erode some of those stereotypes as you go through any of the investor relations process, which, which is, but like, you know, now is the time to have a lot of capital and be deploying it. And especially even with the COVID pandemic, yeah, a lot of companies are, are have been hit by, you know, depressed earnings. So, you know, they're ready to take on new capital at even re more reasonable rates. Right. And it's a bit difficult to kind of sell that at this moment too. I'm sure that you probably run into some trouble when pitching to investors, maybe outside of the country too, that are that you want to try and convince to say, Hey, there's scalability in this business and this frontier market. We have run the model. We've showed you the plan. This is how we're going to do it. You know, A to Z and still at that point, it's it, it, the risk is too high in most cases from their perspective. Yeah, I think, no, I think the key thing is you, you've got to be interfacing with people that understand Southeast Asia. If they've not even made an investment in Southeast Asia, uh, relatively unlikely they're going to be you're going to they're going to make their first commitment to Cambodia right. um, so you look you want to really you mean you best thing to do is looking looking for these adventurous the adventurous family offices that are that have an Asia footprint um, you know you can work with there are some funds of funds there are some adventurous DFIs but DFIs in general are pretty well are pretty cumbersome <laughs> to work with um, and and obviously also you can try and attract high net worth individuals you can try and attract corporates as well but with corporates also come slightly that can be a slightly different process because in general corporates want to be a bit more controlling so so yeah i know it, it's fun i mean it's it, it like i really enjoy trying to make the case to people so i love getting on the phone and just like and, and chatting with people and try and trying to like kind of turn their opinions a bit, but it is, you know, it definitely is a bit of an uphill battle, but you know, I consider, I consider I'm like doing a service to the, to the country as I'm doing that because I'm having to just like erode all these stereotypes of investors that are like not ready to come to 
Cambodia, yeah, or you know, but you, yeah, but but with, with not much. I mean, but if you, you know, if you know how to like, if you know how to like, if you understand the context pretty well, it's not, you know, you can get people quite convinced on the potential here, right. relatively quickly. I think relatively. Yeah. So I guess to take a step back to when you first arrived in Cambodia, what was your first impression of the country? And um, okay, so I arrived in September, yeah. so I'm pretty fresh. Yeah. But I got here, and I had to spend two weeks in self isolation. Yeah, <laughs> can you? Yeah, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because with Cambodia, it's it's a little bit different than most places in the world where you have all these restrictions that you need to pass in order to come in. Whether it's you have to pay the two thousand, you have to pay a two thousand dollar deposit uh, upon arrival. And then you have to quarantine for two days as you wait for your test. And if there's anybody that has a positive test on your plane, then you're forced to stay at the hotel for 14 days of quarantine. And kind of what was going on during that time for you? Yeah. So, so when I got here, the um, yeah, the process was yeah, have a test before you get on the flight, have a test after you got off the flight when you've arrived in Cambodia, then wait, await all that that test with all your plane. Um, for two nights in a hotel, then if everyone on your plane is negative, then you could go and self-isolate um, at your own accommodation. Yeah. So like, yeah, so I got, so I just got an Airbnb for two weeks and you know, I just, I was just being very as sensible as possible and not, not going out at all. I'm just picking up my groceries and just saying that, but yeah, that was my first taste of Cambodia. <laughs> that was like an inter- definitely an interesting uh, way to learn. Um, and then, and then, yeah, I got, I got kind of stuck into to the work pretty quickly because, you know, when you're starting a new job, you just want to kind of um, grind it out a bit. But then I, yeah, then I, then what I found was it's really, really easy to meet people here. Um, you know, joined a sporting club, which, which was a good way to meet people. Um, and yeah, just, I mean, you know, people know people and, and everyone's very, very friendly. You know, I'm, I've always, I'm a big LinkedIn guy, so you know, I, I've set up, set up a bunch of calls with people even before I came in. Like yeah. I spoke to you, John, before. I, yeah, I that think- was right. When, uh, when I saw that, I was like, yeah, okay, well, let's hop on a call, see what's, what's going on next. And on, I, I mean, I'm really happy that that ended up happening, um, especially yeah. too. I'm sure that you've talked to plenty of other people in Cambodia or at least around the region to learn a little yeah. bit more about yeah. what's going on. I mean, overall, like people are so friendly and like, you know, I think before COVID, there was a hundred thousand expats in Cambodia. That was, I think, that was that was the figure, and I think that now I think I'd say probably half of them half of them left in, in Phnom Penh. Um, I think it's about three million. Right. So yeah, um, hun- no, there were a hundred thousand expats. I guess most of them live in Phnom Penh, some in Siem Reap, some on the coast. But you'd say that probably cut down to fifty thousand. Then, then yeah, in our age group, like you know, I'm you know mid twenties. Yeah, you bump into quite a lot of the NGO people, quite a lot of teachers, but there aren't loads of people like doing like startups, business, investment. Mm-hmm. So you get attracted to those kinds of people quite quickly just because like they're doing similar things. Few um, and far in between too. <laughs> yeah. So um but no, it's well and as well, just meeting the locals as well has been has been like very, very easy and very everyone is very friendly. Um but yeah. yeah, I got a I got a pretty diverse friend group like across like i mean i think the one of the first days i went to go meet people i like, like met a guy from like tunisia chile you know a bunch of cambodians um an american like you know a guy from kagiristan like all in like all in one group and i was like wow this is like even even in comparison to like kenya this was it was even like more diverse um, it's yeah it's wild i mean thinking about uh when i was in cambodia too i think my friend group my my core friend group there consisted of um, uh, a girl from India, a French guy, guy from the Philippines. Um, yeah, I mean, it was very diverse Cambodian. It was, and it was awesome though. It was so much fun because everybody had something different to say. Everybody was, it was just such a fun time too. Yeah, I'm almost like when I meet a British person here, it's like, I'm very like, I'm kind of like picky because I'm like, <laughs> I don't want to just make like an English squad. So yeah. I, I kind of give them the hard shoulder a little bit. And just, <laughs> like I really like them. I'm just like, I want to, I don't want to like 
you know, you just want to get out there and meet some new people that you would never expect to meet back in, back in the UK. Yeah. yeah. It's too predictable. Right. Yeah. It was wild to think about the mass exodus that happened, I would say between March to, to May for expats in Cambodia, when all the schools shut down, when NGOs were shutting down and uh, repatriating their workers back to their country. It was wild. I mean, left and right people were leaving. And yeah. it's it's great that even to this day, the people that are still around, um, you're able to have an awesome friend group, people that, I mean, you're going to be heading off to vacation at, you know, after this call pretty much to uh, go for the holiday. But it's really great the kind of community that you get into here. Yeah, yeah. And remind me, when did you leave, Tom? So I left in August, yeah, August 2020. So about four yeah, or five you months. Actually, you, you stuck it out a bit and then... And yeah. Then, yeah remind me, why did you, what, what was the genesis for you going back? Yeah, so for me, I had a little bit of... Uh, I had a couple things that was planning on doing. So the biggest one was I had a little bit of an issue on my visa that required me to actually go back because I was unable to get one at the US embassy at the time. So that was one factor. And it had been about a year and a half, about a, yeah, I would say about a little bit over, a little under a year and a half since I've seen my family. I uh, wasn't able to go home during the holidays or anything. So that was a, another big factor. It'd been a while since seeing them and friends. Um, but yeah, it was, that's pretty much the main reason I would say. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's probably a good segue into, into getting into your background. <laughs> my, uh, <laughs> my journey to the frontier markets. Yeah. Tell us about, tell us about your, your, um, your upbringing and, and yeah, and your kind of journey towards, towards, um, getting involved in the, yeah, in the frontier market investment space. Yeah. So it's a, it's pretty interesting. Both my parents are immigrants from Czech Republic. They moved from there. They, they didn't meet there, but my mom came over when she was 14 and my dad came over when he was 23. They're relatively the same age, about a year apart. And they met in a small town called Vermilion, Ohio. It's one of the few expat communities for the, for the, uh, for Czechs. Uh, it was yep. between New York, LA, and Vermilion, Ohio. So, <laughs> um, Vermilion was definitely the uh, the largest and liveliest place. It's just a small little town and uh, off the Lake Erie. There, um, they were on, actually my my mom was an entrepreneur herself. Herself, her family owned a restaurant called the Old Prague. There, it was pretty successful too until they ended up selling it. Um, but growing up had two very loving parents. Um, both of them really encouraged travel, which was one of the most important things that I value today. And, um, going into university and graduating in December, 2015, um, I was actually one of those study abroad, uh, kids as well. Um, yeah. But, when did you study abroad? So that was my junior year. So I think it was 2013, I want to say. Yeah, summer 2013. Where did you go? Went to Rome. Okay. So you know, just that typical, (laughs) yeah, that that, it was an amazing experience. But I will say, uh, you know, any universe, most university experiences, it's just kind of involved having a good time. So having a little party and, you know, whatever, but still had the opportunity to, um, to travel to a couple places like Spain and Croatia and Greece. And it was really awesome, really awesome experience and fortunate for it. Um, so really what was one of the pivoting moments um, for me was after I graduated university, uh, I had done an internship with Bank of America. I was in their global markets space and their corporate treasury division. All that to say, I was uh, just, just an analyst there. Um, so after the internship, uh, my senior year, uh, I had accepted a full-time offer there. And when I graduated in December, I had about six months off. And so when I was there, I, I had planned a trip with two of my friends uh, during, that, during that time to go down and hike Torres de Pane in Chile, so Patagonia. Yeah. And we did that for about two months. And when, when my friend there that I went with, uh, Hugh, he actually said, you know, if you have another three months, you should go and backpack Asia by yourself. 
And I was thinking, I was thinking, you know, this guy's crazy. Like, why would you do something like that? Right. I mean, I, I don't know. It just didn't seem, it didn't seem at the time I was, you know, I was a little, probably a little scared. Um, yeah. but, uh, I, when I got home, something had come over me and I was like, you know what, damn it. He was right. So, uh, when I got home, it was, I actually had just received my, um, sign on bonus check from the bank and immediately bought a ticket to Bangkok and left three days later. So then, oh, wow. yeah, <laughs> you, uh, my mom was like, what are you doing, Dom? You are, you're crazy. I don't know if I can trust you to do this. I was like, I got it. Don't worry. Little did yeah. I know what I was getting myself into, but the, the following three months were absolutely amazing. And during that time, uh, I had, I was fortunate enough to travel around Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos, and, uh, going down to Indonesia as well. And, that really kicked off my frontier market interest in thinking about when I was looking around and seeing what opportunities were there and how just how exciting and lively it was. Mm. It was a place yeah. in the region that I wanted to go back to in life. And so when I returned, I actually was starting work three days later again. So when I, so you can imagine after doing all this traveling, right, you sit down at your office job and you're like, well, shit. <laughs> yeah this is real yeah. life right so yeah. uh during that time i uh, actually had put together a small travel blog and was trying to balance this urge to go back out there and while pursuing finance where i uh, learned a lot about the bank learned a lot about corporate investments and treasury which was really interesting and eventually switched over to the cfo group um, to work on a fpna team and uh, learn about the balance sheet and income statement of the, the bank and on a large scale. Can you, can you just explain those acronyms for people that don't, that don't know? Yeah, sorry. So it's the uh, so financial planning and analysis group. Uh, group. Uh, essentially, what you do is you take a look at uh, income statement and balance sheet of certain lines of businesses. So for me, it was global commercial bank and global investment bank. It's not like doing any sort of mergers and acquisitions or anything. It's just looking strictly at the financial statements and then creating uh, some sort of forecast to be able to um, present to your senior management saying, this is how these line of businesses are performing and yeah. suggesting these changes that you need to make. So it was interesting experience. And for me though, I had always had a, uh, I'd always had this itch to uh, go into venture capital. It started in, when I was in university, I joined this, or I was part of what we used to say the founding group called the Design Entrepreneurial Network or the DEN. And uh, the, the- You were at Clemson, right? That's right, Clemson University in South Carolina. And yeah. um, go Tigers. And so, uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, Brie, um, she really created this group and for two and a half years, uh, I was part of it and it was really just a, almost an incubator space for, it was the first incubator space at the university and it really encouraged students to have these, uh, to create startups, to learn more about what it takes to build a business and and all of those factors. And to me, it was so interesting and was so into it and had a, had a small business experience there that unfortunately didn't work out. It was, uh, uh, it was for putting umbrellas on campus and using a QR code so students can pay with their uh, university money. So like ours was called Tiger Stripe to be able to open it and drop it off from one location to another. And it was called Shoot Umbrellas. So like, oh, shoot, I, you know. Yeah, corny, I know, but uh, hey, it was the first uh, stab at entrepreneurial experience. That, that, that like, yeah, I mean, for every you know, for every five ideas, you know, for every <laughs> one's going to be a, a winner. Yeah, true. And so to fast forward back to this venture capital startup interest, um, so it was something I'd always mm. been into. Uh, you know, for me, I I, I read. Um, I it's something that. I, I, I wanted to eventually get into, but I didn't know how to do it. And that was a big problem for me, um, especially knowing that my background was more in the corporate finance route. So I went online and uh, actually my girlfriend at the time, she was looking to do, uh, she was looking to teach English in Thailand. So 
it was more of a stars aligned situation where, you know, I decided, Hey, this is the one opportunity I'm going to do. I might as well go for it and try and do something that I want to do. And so how, and how, I mean, how many years have you done at Bank of America by that time? So it was just over three years. Oh, wow. So I had a little bit of a, had a little bit of background oh. in it. <laughs> it was, yeah. So three years of this push and pull between do I stay comfortable in this position or do I take a step out and go for something? That's, that... pretty, that's actually pretty rare because I find like once people like, from talking to friends, it's like once people like hit that like two year mark with the like cushy, like nice job, <laughs> it's quite hard for them, them to be like, all right, I'm, I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> like as you can see from my experience, like I've, I've been a bit um, more undecisive about what I want to do, but um but it was really just because I wanted to get to the point where I, where I hit like hit where I wanted to be, and that was just investments, right? Like actually on the right side. But that yeah. does it does take it does take some time to get there. But it, anyway, continue uh, to your yeah. Uh, time. Yeah. No man, I mean it makes complete sense. And I read a book called Small Money, Big Impact. It was by the uh, CEO and previous CEO of uh, Blue Orchard, and they were the ones that the book was what really influenced me to look more into the uh, VC side of impact investments. So originally I was planning on participating in a microfinance um, program that was in Cambodia. And when I was coming across some of the, <clears throat> some of the people that were funding these microfinance institutions, I, I came across them and I saw that, that small money, big impact was, a book they wrote. So I bought the book, read it, learned that private equity venture capital are actually catalysts to funding these initiatives. And that led me to my next stage where I came across Uber's Capital, <clears throat> where they're a, a first-time fund. Um, they had an opportunity as, a, in, as an intern investment analyst to join their team. And at the time I was like, you know what, do I stay and do I you know, live this comfortable position that I'm in at this moment, or do I just take the step and go for it? And I decided to sit down with my manager at the time and I told him the situation. And he said, you know what, you're at this time in life, you know, you're at 26, you should go for it. I mean, what do you really have to lose? So for yeah. that, for him to kind of give that additional push of confidence, um, I ended up applying. Yeah. Yeah. It was really cool. had had some awesome uh, managers, John and, and Matt, and they were really great guys who um, who understood the both sides of it. Of you have like you have your job, but at the same time you have your life. And the, if you have something that you really want to pursue and you feel like it's just going to take away from your experience, then you should go for it. And that was really important to me. And having that confidence was great. So ended up applying. Um, during that time, my girlfriend had been accepted into and was le literally leaving for Thailand and uh, fortunate enough was um, granted the opportunity for the internship at Uber's Capital. Um, flew over to Cambodia in, uh, in July and began my work there. And it was really, a uh, really interesting time. And this was July, 2019. So, um, but it was really interesting. And what, and what was your, yeah, what was your, what was your first experience in Cambodia? Like how did, how did, how did that? <laughs> what? Well, yeah, I know well, you'd been before, but like your first, like, <laughs> I guess, wait, how long had you done in Cambodia on your initial travels? Yeah. So it's interesting because when you think about backpacking, it's a totally different idea versus living in a country, right? So when I was backpacking, I uh, went to Siem Reap and Phnom Penh, and this was in 2016. So, yeah. I mean, maybe spent seven days in the country. So uh, really had a total fresh perspective, maybe just like vaguely remembering Anchor Wat. But um, coming in, I, I thought to myself, I was like, uh, you know, when you arrive into the country and you hop out and you get a tuk-tuk and you're driving to whatever hotel it is that you're going to, you're kind of looking around like, oh my gosh, this is pure madness. There's just, yeah. <laughs> there's just taxis, there's uh motorbikes everywhere and yeah. uh so my first impression i was like i was like what the fuck did i get myself into <laughs> quite frankly and uh but of course 
once you once you settle in you find your flat that you end up living in and you you settle down for after that first week or so then you really appreciate everything that that pen on pen and that the country has to offer and it's yeah i mean i think i think order and like order and predictability can be can be overrated right but but if you're (laughs) so used to order and predictability like like you working three years in like a very like routine probably kind of way yeah to then just be like completely have that destroyed like is is interesting i guess the difference with me was like yeah i i had these much more like remote and kind of like flexible jobs before but but you know but i i think for you coming from that quite corporate environment and then being sort of chucked into and and, but how did how did the how did the work culture differ like how would you compare like working at bank of america to working in a vc fund in cambodia (laughs) (laughs) that's a that's a funny uh that's a funny question because it is so different i mean i i'm pretty sure the first day i when i got to uber so it was what we were uh, we were over in Cove Peak, so in Diamond Island, and we were. I, I called up one of the guys that was there, and I was like, "Hey, you mind let me in?" And he comes down, and he's in a t-shirt and shorts, <laughs> wow. some trainers, and I'm literally there with like a tucked-in shirt. I'm pretty sure I like packed a tie in my bag, thinking this is going to be some serious situation. And he looked at me. He's like, "Why are you all dressed up, man?" <laughs> And I was like, I thought everybody was dressed up. And he goes, oh, man, it's like a, it's like 90 degrees out, or, uh, you know, it's, it's so hot out here. Why are you, you're going to be sweating all day. And I was like, man, you're so right. I'm already sweating right now, just standing here. So it, so it was, it was. Is that where your office used to be? You used to be in Diamond Island? Yeah. Before we moved over to, uh, yeah, before we moved over to um, just north of, uh, near Tulcock actually. Yeah, yeah. Which is northern uh, Penn Pen. But it was, it's a lot different. I remember sending pictures to my manager and old team at Bank of America. They were like, wow, are you serious right now? You're living the life. And I was like, yeah, I know I am. <laughs> so, um, so it was good. You know, back in, there, there definitely is a very hier- hierarchy-like culture in, uh, in Bank of America, which, you know, it has to be like that in a huge corporation, right? But at the same time, um, for for me having that you know coming in in a suit not necessarily a suit and tie but dressed up with a tie and that pretty much almost business professional um wear and kind of the the i would say the um kind of like the culture it was a lot different coming to to uh uberis and it was, mm. it was it was a great change of pace i would say definitely a lot more laid back um it was like you had a lot of trust which is really important i feel like at a young age um there can be situations where you're micromanaged maybe by your manager or something like that and in this position it was just the two managing directors and they said hey you know we want this uh deliverable just get it to us in the next two weeks and you can, there was, that was it. You had your free reign of working on it when you wanted to work on it and making sure that you just hit that deadline. And that was it. If you had, yeah. And there was always open communication. And that was probably what the most important thing was for me was that there was important communication between you well, and it's also, I also think that the smaller the firm is, you know, people can't be, for lack of a better word, people can't be douchebags because like <laughs> you literally if it's only like five to 10 people that work there, like, you know, you, you're going to be spending so much time with each other you, that you've got to get along. So it's not, so whereas if you're working at like a firm that's got, you know, thousands of people, anyone can just plunk something on your desk and just kind of like give you a hard shoulder and just say, yeah, I need it. I need it. I need it in the AM. Like, you know, I need it. Like, I need it in eight hours. <laughs> right. But I mean, <laughs> probably seen that person before and it's like, they just, so they just don't care, but. Right. But I mean, there are also times like at some point or another, we're all going to be in that position where we probably have to to work like that. And for me, once again, I'm very fortunate to have really awesome managers and um, directors who have been very, um, been very cool and just really understanding. And so that's, 
I, I value all of uh, those experiences a lot. Yeah. And anyway, and t- tell our listeners um, what you want to achieve with the Rising Giants podcast. Yeah. So that's a great question. Um, I, like I said, I was, I was really glad that we had to connect in Max because I think both of you and I are on the same page in terms of frontier markets and understanding that there is just a huge amount of change that's going on in this region. And a lot of it is a bit of a laggard in places like uh, Cambodia. And for me, with what what I'm looking to, and I think same idea as you, to achieve with the podcast and is to be able to shine light on these entrepreneurs and investors and have them tell their story of what it is that they're doing and how it is that it's going to make a huge effect, not only on the region, but on the people, on the governments, on policies and things that are really um, crucial in shifting and shaping the future of Mm. places like Cambodia. That's, that's super important. Yeah. I think, I think for me as well, I've always been really slightly annoyed, but um, you know, kind of upset with the fact that like so many investors are just so quite insular and just focused on, you know, trading, you know, the S and P 500 NASDAQ, you know, FTSE, you know, whatever it is, just like, easy stocks and easy things and they just neglect a lot of the other investment universe and like what i find so interesting is that the global gdp like there's about 100 trillion gdp in the world and there's about 400 trillion in wealth and so if you can actually redirect wealth right you can make a huge impact mm-hmm. but the, the problem right now is that you know wealth is like you know a lot of it's too conservative but but the but the transfer to millennials and the and the and it is, is meaning everything's changing a lot. And a lot of that's going towards impact, but, um, but I honestly believe the, the best place to, to get to like, like you were saying that book you read, um, small dollar, high, high impact, small money, big impact. Yeah. I'll have to, I'll have to, uh, send it to you. If you want to put, if you want to put a million to work in like a, you know, you know, a positive ESG business in like Cambodia, that's going to make a huge, a much bigger impact than, chucking a million at like some solar panels in Canada, right? Yeah. It's like completely, it's like, yeah. So if people really want to get, get into like some like feel good investing, this, this, where they, this is where they got to be. Yeah. But not only that too, it's, there's this, that like the feel good investing part, I, I feel like people need to realize too, that there's a, a greater return that you get on these investments. Yeah. It's not that if you put a million dollars towards this project, it's just going to be, you're going to get one or 2%, right? I mean, if you wanted to go and do that, put your money in a CD. But what's really interesting is that these businesses have scalability and have potential. And that's really what you're, what you're almost trying to bring to light. And it's, it's a bit frustrating and I'm sure you share the same frustrations as well with talking to investors and and trying to tell them like, Hey, I'm have business X that's scalable. And we've, we've shown how this is going to, to grow and affect the country. You almost only have to make a $200,000 investment at this time. I mean, people are still saying, well, you know, it's way too risky because of the political climate in, in uh, Cambodia, there's maybe these regulations to worry about and, and everything, but to really put into perspective, everything is moving forward in the country. And it's yeah. just a, it's just in a, a, a game of eventually waiting and it'll change. It's like making the change. You have to almost like force the change. And then on turn in terms of policy and that front, it'll catch up with this sort of the sort of companies that are being built in the. Yeah. I mean, it's, the, yeah, it's, it, no, it's, it's higher return and it's higher impact. So it's like, it's a win-win, like a huge win-win for, for everyone. Um, mm-hmm. Everyone's still kind of learning that. Yeah. Let me, let me, let me, do, let me give you a parting question. What about, cause we asked this to a lot of our guests. Um, sure. What's the most important advice you've ever been given? Hmm. Gosh, that's a good question. No, I haven't really thought about that in a while. <laughs> 
Dang. You want, you want me to go first? Yeah, you can go first. All right, my favorite, I think my favorite quote of all time um, is all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. <laughs> that was, for me, that's like, like such a good quote because like, when you figure out like what are your actual like problems in, in life, when you actually just sit alone and just and really just put everything into perspective, you realize that most of the stuff that we, that we worry about is so minimal. Um, and yeah, so yeah, that, that's for me. That's like, that, that, that's what's kept me sane through the years. It's just like, it's just being able to be reminded of that and just taking time out to, to think things through, which I don't think a lot of people do. A lot of people, a lot of people live life on autopilot, right? And you've got to try and you've got to try and like, um, have some self-awareness and and take time out to just decompress and and think and think through like where you are and what you're doing and that kind of thing so yeah that to me is the other thing is um is people right you've got you got to find people that drag you up not down that's what my dad's always told me mm. um, people judge you by the company you keep it's not that like i, I want to be judgmental to people but like i really just look for people that that bring me to a better level um so yeah that's me what yeah, so you, that's a really good answer yeah i guess you know i'll have to probably return to that one on a on another interview later but for me i think one of the most important things that i've learned or have been told uh is to is to just break the glass and meaning that if you have any sort of idea or if you ever double you know if you ever kind of check yourself on wanting to talk to somebody or to send that email or to apply for a new job or something like that. Um, instead of just mulling it over, or just putting it off for another day, just break the glass and go for it. Um, there's really got, not going to be any sort of problem with you doing it. What's the worst that's going to happen?